Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, speaking to you at the beginning of the Easter long weekend. Now almost two months after Russian forces invaded Ukraine and almost two weeks after we previewed a hotly anticipated meeting between the senior leadership of the European Union and China's President Xi Jinping and his second-in-command Li Keqiang. High hopes were placed on this call that it might spur some sort of action from Xi Jinping to use his no-limits bromance with Vladimir Putin to push for a peaceful solution to the ongoing slaughter of civilians and wholesale destruction of Ukraine cities. Here's a hint on how that worked out. In a dialogue with uh, everything but a dialogue, maybe a dialogue with the deaf, but certainly we did not come to an agreement on joint actions. You'll be hearing our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham, analysing what else was said and what was said in a fiery phone call just before that meeting got underway. But it's not all a united front in Europe when it comes to relations with China. This week, six heavy-lift aircraft from the People's Liberation Army Air Force flew from China to Serbia with a special cargo. China delivered an anti-aircraft missile system to Russian ally Serbia over the weekend. Now, the Chinese Foreign Ministry describes it as part of an annual cooperation plan between China and Serbia. That move prompting concerns among Western allies that an arms buildup in the Balkans could further threaten stability in that region. You'll hear why Finbar is less than surprised about that and why Serbia, which has long been an ally of Russia, is, along with the newly elected government of Hungary, looking to the east for a new authoritarian partner. He's also got some very interesting revelations about what the US is researching and planning for China. Now it's had a chance to see how its sanctions on Russia's financial system are working. Pour yourself a strong coffee. We're headed back to Brussels. Finbar Birmingham is our Brussels-based correspondent, capping off yet another hectic week, keeping track of the developments within the EU and its relationship with China. Hello, Finbar. Hello, Jared. We need to catch up on last week's news. Last we spoke, you previewed this highly anticipated meeting between the EU leadership and Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. It's since been described as a dialogue of the deaf. Doesn't sound positive, Finbar. No, there wasn't really that much positive to come from it, Jared. It was, I think, as we previewed it, even as it was underway when we spoke last, we were sort of fairly well managed in our expectations. We didn't expect anything really major to be achieved. But, I mean, I think even it went beyond that. 
it was quite shocking, I think, in Europe, the, the reaction and the blowback that there's been to this. So, I mean, just to sort of set the scene, it was a video conference between three EU leaders, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President of the Council, Charles Michel, who represents the member states, and Joseph Borrell, who's the Chief of Foreign Affairs, essentially. And they spent a couple of hours in the morning talking to China's Premier Li Keqiang and an hour in the afternoon with Xi Jinping. And if you sort of do the maths on these things, an hour is nothing because you have to have simultaneous translation, etc. So you've really got about 15 minutes for each. And anyway, um, they came away, at least on the EU side, feeling really, really angry about this, that China was essentially not listening to anything they were saying. They wanted to talk entirely about Ukraine. I mean, this was the, the entire objective from the European Union going into this. They wanted to make sure that China understood their position. They wanted to try and convince China to take a stance and to not provide support military or economic to Russia or to help it to circumvent sanctions. Now, I don't think they achieved anything in, in regard to that. They, they came away thinking that they hadn't had any commitment from China on any of those fronts, indeed, the, the message we've been told time and again since then is that China didn't want to talk about Ukraine at all. China kept trying to steer the conversation towards more positive aspects of the relationship, cooperation on climate change and so on. I had heard subsequently after the, the summit that in the run up to the event, uh, there was a call between Borrell and Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, which was fiery. Wang Yi lost his temper at Borrell because he claimed that Burrell kept ignoring his proposals on, on green issues. I'd heard from, from a source that there were no proposals submitted. And so, but Burrell kept trying to talk about Ukraine, and this was enough to anger Wang Yi. And that, that mood certainly carried into the summit and the post-summit fallout. Look, I, I think even beforehand, the EU leaders were not expecting China to take a clear stance on this, but perhaps they were expecting to be able to at least discuss it in a in a manner in which they found productive that didn't happen and i think in the subsequent two weeks we've seen eu china relations hit a new low we had last week joseph borrell in the european parliament describing it as you said at the top of the show as a dialogue of the deaf essentially making out that this was was kind of a waste of time um there was, uh, you know, there have been sort of, you know, briefings that the Chinese spent a lot of time lecturing the EU on their own human rights record. And the reaction to that in Brussels is kind of like read the room. You know, we're talking here about a war, an act of war in our neighborhood. You know, this is not a time to be lecturing us. I mean, at least that's the sort of point from from Brussels and Beijing. I'm sure it's it's vastly different. You can deduce what you want from this, but the Chinese released a series of readouts throughout the actual summit. I mean, the first one came right after the talk between Li and the three leaders finished. And then 15 minutes into the call between Xi and the two leaders, there was another readout. So they hadn't even waited for more than a quarter of an hour to pass before they were releasing what was their summary of the entire event. So read into that what you will. After the event, the Chinese government briefed reporters in Beijing. Almost exclusively, they talked about the comprehensive agreement on investment. That's the investment deal between the EU and China, which is totally stalled and which has absolutely no chance of being unlocked because there are sanctions on European lawmakers, retaliatory sanctions and academics and diplomats. Nothing on Ukraine. So, so, I mean, it shows how vastly different things are. I do get a sense that maybe in Beijing they're miscalculating the depth of feeling here in Europe. I mean, this is a single issue continent at the moment. 
it's all people are talking about. It's every single policy seems to revolve around the Ukraine situation. We've got the Czech presidency of the European Union starting in, in a couple of months. I had a beer with with Czech diplomat the other day and I said, how's the, how's the plans going? He said, well, what plans? I mean, everything's going to be totally, totally washed out. Anything we wanted to achieve is going to be undermined by by the Ukraine situation. So, I mean, it's it's just dominating everything. And so for maybe the Chinese realised this or maybe they didn't, but, you know, to sort of try and ignore it and sweep it under the carpet isn't really going to wash, and it clearly hasn't. Finbar, one of the other big issues that's been raised is China's state media really amplifying and pushing Russian propaganda and disinformation about the Ukraine war, be it amplifying the accusations that the Butcher massacre wasn't in fact that, there was actors involved, these things are being staged. Did the European delegation raise that as an issue, this this role of China's state media in pushing disinformation about Ukraine? I don't know whether they directly raised the disinformation, but I, I did hear something quite interesting on how China had flipped that on its head. In conversations with Li Keqiang, EU leaders were, were sort of urging them not to provide military support to Russia. Li Keqiang at this point, he accused European and Western media of peddling disinformation when he he pointed to reports about China having willingness to provide military support to Russia. And he called this fake news. He, he described it as disinformation. You know, so, so it's interesting that we are here talking quite extensively about the Chinese media using disinformation on this very high level call with, with European leaders. The Chinese were accusing the European media of engaging in disinformation. But I mean, this is an ongoing issue here. We, we've we seen, in, for, for example, the the Chinese embassy in Paris retweeting claims of the biolabs and US bioweaponry being produced in, in Ukraine. I mean, it's being noticed. The EU's disinformation team, they have an entire team to follow this, it's actually quite heavily focused on Russia and a little bit more and more China. They put together their first ever release in Chinese just before the summit in an effort to reach out to Chinese netizens to maybe sort of try and dispel some or debunk some of the disinformation that is floating around those channels. It was not banned in China, actually. Interestingly, I reached out to some, some of our colleagues in Beijing and they, they told me they could access it fine. So that was was welcomed uh, in, in the EU. But I mean, look, this is certainly uh, an issue that hasn't gone unnoticed. The EU were keen to remind China of the economic cost that would come from supporting Russia. Um, they reminded Xi Jinping of how many Western companies have left Russia in the past six, seven weeks. The sort of thinly veiled threat being this could be you. Don't know if it's as easily as simple as that. I don't know whether you can transpose the Russia situation onto China, but I'm, I'm, I think we'll get on to sort of economics shortly. And with that, Finbar, one of the latest deep dive features you've put together with our colleague Jacob Fromer in the US is how the US and EU are studying quite closely how the sanctions against Russia have worked and how that kind of approach might be deployed against China. Now, the obvious one is Russia's economy quite small compared to the giant that is China. What more can you tell us about this? Yeah, let me let me sort of clear it up a little bit. The US is studying 
whether these mammoth sanctions will work on, on China. So they're actively modeling within the US government, for example, whether they can go after Chinese central bank assets, whether they can go after China's commercial bank assets. They have floated this with European partners who are far less committal, as you, you sort of, um, you might imagine. I mean, despite the sort of souring of the uh, atmosphere in, in Europe, they're still not at the same place as, as the United States. They're nowhere near where the US is. There was a meeting in in between European and US partners that I'd heard at which sort of the, the US was using terms such as when we sanction China rather than if. And some of the Europeans were, were quite shocked by this. It's not a given here by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly not out of the question if they're found to be, for example, contravening or circumventing sanctions. But this modeling is, is going on in the US. It's fair to say it would be a total diff, totally different kettle of fish. You know, the central bank assets of, of China in the West dwarf those of the Russian central bank. It would be economically really damaging to the United States to seize China's central bank holding of, of US dollars, for example. I mean, you're essentially writing off your own debt there. So it's look, it's it's a it's a conversation that's going on, but the fact that it's ha- happening, I suppose, shows the the sort of extent of feeling, you know, and it also demonstrates, I suppose, you know, the fact that they're feeling comfortable enough to raise this with the Europeans. How far things have changed in Europe, as I said, the Europeans aren't quite there yet. I think they're some way off that, but they're more receptive than they were. Six months ago, don't forget on this show six months ago, we were talking about AUKUS, the submarine deal in which the Australians, the Brits and the Yanks had essentially blown the French out of the water and cost something like, what was it, like 80 billion or something like that, 80 billion dollars. I mean, we'll have to check those figures. I I can confirm that it's since been revealed that it was 5 billion Australian dollars or 25 billion Hong Kong dollars was the cost of exiting that agreement with France for Australia. So Australian taxpayers have spent $5 billion thanks to uh, AUKUS. Thanks for clearing that up. But <laughs> if you think about after that, that Borel, for example, was fuming because it, it happened just on the eve of his unveiling of his own Indo-Pacific strategy. We, I was at the press conference. He was mighty, mighty ticked about that. The relationship since then, the Russia situation has really thrust them together. They're sharing intelligence. They are speaking regularly as Margaret Versteiger, one of the senior people in the EU, said it helps when you have each other's phone numbers. You know, they know each other and they there's more trust now than there was before. There's going to be a meeting here in Brussels, I think next week or the week after, uh, between the number two diplomats, Stefano Sanino here in Europe and Wendy Sherman, at which they're going to discuss China. Next month, we're going to see a new meeting of the Trade and Technology Council in Paris. This is the sort of collaborative effort agreed last summer. And at that, I think they're going to talk about things such as export controls on China. They're going to talk about things such as outbound investment screening. Now, currently, we have inbound investment screening here in Europe where Chinese companies can't, not just Chinese companies, but you know this is clearly where it's aimed, can't just buy whatever European strategic infrastructure asset or company that they want, say a semiconductor company or a bridge in Slovakia, whatever. It has to be sort of vetted. Now they want to screen outbound investments so that they don't want their companies to get too entangled in China. I mean, this is, this is a totally new ball game. We're not in Kansas anymore. So um, these are the sorts of collaborations that are ongoing and 
you know, it's the sort of within these within these frameworks, I think the European Union is very comfortable operating out with that on the sort of nuclear options of sanctions on China. As I say, I think they're some way off being on the same page as, as the US, but a lot of this depends on China. What does China do vis-a-vis Russia? Does it come out even more strongly on Moscow's side? That will determine how fast these things move. In our discussions since the beginning of this war against Ukraine by Russia, has been this one line that if China were to provide military aid to Russia, that would be a red line, a deal breaker for Europe, for you know many countries in the world. We're reading in the last 24 hours that Serbia has taken delivery of Chinese-made missiles. Serbia being a close ally of Russia, how is this playing in the heart of the EU in Brussels? First thing to mention is I don't think it's playing very loudly. I'm not sure it's the biggest story here, as it might be in an ordinary time, just because there's so many other distracting issues. But it's not been received well, let's say that. Serbia is an EU membership candidate. It has been for a long time, and this is part of the problem. They've been on this sort of enlargement approach to, to joining the EU for a long time, and there's been no progress. So they're maybe a little bit disenfranchised and happy to court favour from, from the East. You know, it's symbolic as much as anything that there are now high-tech and advanced Chinese defence equipment being delivered to the European continent at a time when there's a war raging not too far away. It hasn't gone unnoticed, let's put it that way. The Germans have been very upset. They've reminded Serbia that, you know, if you do want to join the gang, you have to be on the same page on foreign policy, on defence. But Serbia is, you know, a regional superpower in its own right. It's always had cosy ties with Russia, as you intimated there. You know, Vucic, who's the, the Serbian president, just got elected last week for a new term. He actually kicked off his election campaign in Beijing on February 4th. You may remember as the fateful day on which Putin and she also met. Vucic was one of the other leaders at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics. And he was pitching this to the Serbian electorate as, look, I have very close friends and powerful friends in the East. This was supposed to be his way of kicking off the election, which was overtaken by events in Ukraine, right? But Serbia has a complex history with uh, with the West, with NATO. Uh, you know, the Yugoslav Wars ended 20-odd years ago, but these scars run deep. There's a lot of anti-Western se- sentiment in Serbia, and so it plays well among the electorate there to show that, that you have sort of close friends that aren't necessarily in that block in that coterie of, of of nations. That's why Serbia has close ties with Russia. That's why Serbia always has done. That's why, why you know, China is actually very popular in Serbia. They, you know, if you look at the opinion polling, they don't have the same cynicism or suspicion of China. They're quite open to China's advances and China has successfully exploited this to be a, a strong financial partner of Serbia and now a military partner. As Putin becomes more and more of a persona non grata, we have to wait and see whether Serbia is going to, it has yet to condemn the war, although it did vote for the UN resolutions condemning the war. But if Serbia is in a way forced to maybe back away from Putin a little bit, then you can expect it to grow its ties with China even more because Vucic needs to have this sort of alternative power to the East to provide some sort of like you know, counterbalance to its relationship with NATO, of which it is also a close collaborator, 
and with the European Union. I mean, that's I suppose smart politics in in a place like like Serbia, where as I said, that those those sentiments run high. And this brings to mind uh, another close friend of China in Europe, and that is Viktor Orban in Hungary. This makes it very interesting, Finbar, because you talk about this new solidarity forged in the EU as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it looks like China is just picking a couple of friends on the European continent to get closer and closer to. Yes, Orban won in a landslide last week on the same day that Vucic also won his election in Serbia. So Orban has another term as prime minister, super majority in the Hungarian parliament. He's going to be faced even more than the Serbians with this dilemma of balance, you know, the, the EU with, with an alternative power. He can no longer have the same sort of business as usual relationship with Vladimir Putin who has been a, a close and strong sponsor of, of Orban's brand of authoritarianism within the EU's borders. So the natural, I guess, assumption is that the already cosy ties with Beijing will, will become more cosy. Hungary actually haven't really done too much to block the, the EU sanctions on Russia. They've said that they're happy to pay for oil and energy and rubles. They've sort of intimated that they won't support energy sanctions, but nor will Germany. But I do think that he cannot really maintain his ties with Putin at this moment. And so I do think that you're going to see the Hungary-China relationship, which has already blossomed under Orban's tenure, blossom again. Hungary needs China more than ever. Arguably, China needs Hungary more than ever because it's hemorrhaging support elsewhere in the EU. The Germans the French, I mean, everybody is is getting a little bit fed up with China's position vis-a-vis Russia. Hungary doesn't seem to have any such quibbles. So I do think that's something that's going to grow. As always, a lot going on. And we'll be watching you on Twitter at FBirmingham and watching your updates, of course, at SEMP.com. Finbar Birmingham, have a great Easter. Thanks, Jared. See you later. That's it for this week's episode of China Geopolitics, but there's so much more to talk about. Pakistan has a new government just weeks after a visit from China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi. There's impending elections in the Philippines and Indonesia, where relations with China are a central fixture of policy debate. And of course, there's that other democracy, a bit further south of Jakarta. We might take a look at their election once the name-calling dies down and look at the role China is playing in the Australian national election. Don't forget all your latest news updates and analysis are at scmp.com where you can read the works of Finbar Birmingham and all our colleagues you hear on this podcast. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our weekly podcast newsletter, The Listening Post. You can get your podcast reviews and updates of our upcoming projects delivered straight to your email inbox. Now have a safe, have a great Easter holiday and hopefully by the next time you hear from us, we'll no longer be working from home but instead from the SEMP office here in Hong Kong. Until then, stay safe, stay distant, but stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.